scripture reading tonight is found in the book of Judges, chapter 16. Judges, chapter 16. And we're going to commence our reading at the 10th verse of the chapter. Judges, chapter 16, commencing our reading at the 10th verse of the chapter. Just breaking into the chapter, uh, Delilah's trying to find out the great strength of Samson, and he's not willing to convey that information to her until finally, of course, she breaks him down completely. But we'll commence at verse 10 of the chapter. Judges chapter 16 and verse 10. And Delilah said unto Samson, Behold, thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Now tell me, I pray thee, wherewith thou mightest be bound. And he said unto her, If they bind me fast with new ropes that never were occupied, then shall I be weak and be as another man. Delilah therefore took new ropes and bound him therewith and said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And there were liars in wait abiding in the chamber. And he brake them from off his arms like a thread. And Delilah said unto Samson, Hitherto thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Tell me wherewith thou mightest be bound. And he said unto her, If thou weavest the seven locks of my head with the web. And she fastened it with the pin and said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awaked out of his sleep and went away with the pin of the beam and with the web. And she said unto him, How canst thou say, I love thee, when thine heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him, so that his soul was vexed unto death, that he told her all his heart, and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand, and she made him sleep upon her knees. And she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awaked out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before, and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God, and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy, and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass, when their hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport. And they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. 
Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and of the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the burying place of Manoah his father. And he judged Israel twenty years. Ending our reading there at the end of that 16th chapter of the book of Judges, trusting the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his own holy and inspired truth for Christ our Saviour's sake. I'm glad to see you this evening. We're a little bit low in numbers. I don't know what has happened. Maybe I preached uh, two sermons this morning and people have decided they had enough. Uh, but it's nice to see you uh, that are here and we trust the Lord uh, will bless us richly uh, as we are met together here to worship him, to sing his praise and to hear from his word. I do trust the Lord will speak to us uh, and that the Lord will move in our hearts. Uh, Tuesday night at seven o'clock, our prayer meeting and Bible study, continuing with our look at the Beatitudes. Next Lord's Day, services 11 in the morning and then in the evening at 6 p.m. And God willing, I'll be with you to preach in the morning and again in the evening. Uh, and then just one other announcement that concerns the election of deacons. That will be on the 19th of September. Tuesday the 19th of September, the Reverend Gulliher will be here and I will be assisting him in the conducting of the election of the deacons. So I think that's everything by way of announcement. Uh, we're going to sing the hymn number, what is it, 498. Begone on belief, my Saviour is near and for my relief will surely appear. 498. Beautiful hymn, and we're going to stand as we sing. I might sit down, but uh, hopefully you will stand. 498.
It's a very beautiful hymn, and two verses of that hymn are inscribed on the tomb of Mrs. Uh, Spurgeon, uh, Mrs. Susanna Spurgeon. His love and time past forbids me to think. He leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. Beautiful words, and I trust the Lord will bless them to us. We'll unite our hearts briefly in prayer. Father in heaven, bless us, we pray. Speak, O God, through thy word. Fill me, Lord, with thy Holy Spirit. Do us good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My text is found in verses 20 and 22 of Judges chapter 16. Just a couple of statements out of the two verses. In verse 20 it says, And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. That word wist means knew. He knew not. I think that should be obvious, but just in case it isn't, he didn't know that the Lord was departed from him. And then, uh, and putting beside that, uh, the beginning of verse 22. How be it, it says, the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. So you might think that's a rare combination of verses. I hope to show you uh, that there is a, a correlation uh, between the two statements. Some years ago, a farmer who was an atheist, and that's a rare combination, uh, wrote to the local paper, I think it was in the United States, and this man, he said that uh, in the particular year uh, in which uh, he was living, uh, he had decided to set aside one field uh, to uh, carry out all his activities in that field on a Sunday. He said he ploughed the field on a Sunday, he sowed the seed uh, on a Sunday, he tended to uh, the uh, ongoing work in the field on a Sunday, and when it came to the time to reap the harvest, he reaped his harvest on a Sunday. And as he wrote to the paper, he said, that October, the yield was the best yield that he had ever had. The editor of that local paper was a Christian, and he wrote a little note regarding the man's letter, and he said, God does not make full reckoning in October. How true that is. God does not make full reckoning in October. The man was thinking, I've done what I pleased. God hasn't touched me, and really, I have proof that there is no God. You know, Samson, if he had known that statement, he might well have taken it to heart. God does not make full reckoning in October. God does not make full reckoning at the time that we do that which is wrong. Whether we be Christians or non-Christians, saved or unsaved, we may do things that are not right, and we may appear to prosper as a result, but God does not make full reckoning as soon as we do wrong. Now, Samson was a child of God. That much is very clear from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. Uh, in that verse, God sets out a number of names, Samuel, David, uh, Gideon, and he includes amongst those names the name of Samson. And these are people who had faith in the coming Redeemer, so it is quite clear that Samson was a child of God. Interestingly, 
Amongst the, the mighties included in that verse, like Samson and David and the prophets who are grouped together, uh, we, we, we find that uh, there, is, uh, there is a group uh, just put into uh, you know, one verse. Whereas the next verse speaks of one person, a woman that many would have looked down on, Rahab. She gets a whole verse to herself. Doesn't that show us the grace of God that he can speak of the mighties uh, of the Old Testament and then he can pick one who fell deeply into sin, rescued by his grace, and speak of Rahab. And she has that little statement attached to her name, Rahab the harlot. Seems harsh because she was delivered from her harlotry many years before she died. But always that little epithet, Rahab the harlot. It's the grace of God that saves people like that. And it's the grace of God that saves people like you and me. Now this man, Samson, he was given to his parents, Manoah and his wife. And they had a revelation from God. They would have a son. And he was to be dedicated to God, consecrated to God, even from the time he was in his mother's womb. He was not to take anything from uh, the vine. He was not to take strong drink. He was not to touch anything that was unclean. His hair was not to be shaven. And God gave him supernatural strength. And that strength was not for serving himself. That strength was to do the work of God. And of course, what we've got to say, we who are saved, we are consecrated to God. The Bible says that our body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God dwells within every Christian, and we must not defile the temple of God by sin. Times we do. Many times we fail, but it's so wrong. I think of the Old Testament and the book of Nehemiah, where we find that there was a compromise between the high priest in Israel and a man called Tobiah, Tobiah the servant, a slavish or slavish sort of man. It's not simply that he was a servant, the Ammonite, but he had that servile spirit and he had a hatred for God. And yet, the high priest in Israel, he found for Tobiah, a room in the temple. And the things of Tobiah were brought into the temple to defile it. When Nehemiah discovered that, he was very angry. And he went into that room and he threw everything concerning Tobiah out of that room and he chased Tobiah out of the temple. Little example, and I'm digressing maybe slightly here, A little example of what we need to do. When our temple is defiled, when there's sin, wrongdoing in our lives, we've got to get rid of the household stuff of Tobiah. We've got to get rid of that which is evil, that which stinks in the nostril of God. And here is Samson. He defiles the temple of God, as we'll see in a moment or two. And yet, strangely, when you're saved... God never gives up on you. He never gives up. He has promised, and I quoted the verse this morning, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that brings me to a first point, because our text says, he wist not 
he knew not that the Lord was departed from it. What does it mean then? If the Lord never leaves his people, what does it mean when it says that the Lord was departed from him? It cannot be an absolute departure. That's one point I want to make. It can't be an absolute departure in view of the fact that the Lord has promised never to leave us or forsake us and in view of other scriptures. We think of John chapter 10. Christ says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. The word know means acknowledge. I own them. They follow me. And then he says, and I give unto them eternal life. Now, if it's eternal, it doesn't last for a mere 20 years or a mere 20 days. It lasts forever. Eternal is forever. And they shall never perish. So there's uh, two statements uh, built in together. They have eternal life. They shall never perish. And then you might think, well, maybe, maybe the devil will get to us. Maybe the devil will pull us away and destroy us. And no man or, or no one, because the word man isn't in the original. It means no one or nothing. No one will pluck us out of his hand. It's impossible uh, for the child of God to be plucked uh, in, out of the hand of Jesus Christ. And Christ then adds another guarantee. He says, my father, uh, which given me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And someone has pictured it this way. The hand of Christ is around us. And then the father puts his round, hand round so that we are doubly, triply, quadruply, secure. We cannot perish. Here is Samson. We've seen he's a child of God. He does wrong, but he doesn't lose his salvation. We'll see what happens to him in a moment or two. But why does it say then that the Lord was departed from him? I've said it's not. It cannot be in an absolute sense. Maybe a simple illustration will help here. You get a child with uh, his mother will say it's a boy. He's in the supermarket uh, with his mother, and mum says to him, Now listen, you stay with me. Don't you be running off. You know what children are like. Mum says it, and it's almost a temptation to the child. I will run off. And off the child goes and goes into one aisle and into another aisle, and then he gets lost. And then there's weeping. Mum's gone. Where is she? I can't find her. And he's heartbroken. Now, mum knows where he is. She has noticed. But she doesn't make herself known. She lets him, we might say, stew in it. Uh, and lets him suffer. Uh, before she shows herself, she wants to teach him a lesson. You're not to wander off again. You stay with me. So she, she lets him cry. And she lets him feel lost and isolated and in great fear. And then eventually she makes herself known and she may say, now you're getting no treat today. You disobeyed me. I told you not to. So you'll have to suffer. And in a sense, we might say, that's the way that the Lord left Samson. He left him to his own devices. He left him to suffer the consequences not the complete consequences of his sin, but he left him to suffer the consequences of his sin. And I believe that that is the sense in which the Lord 
departed from Samson. But we want to look at a second point. We want to see what was it that led up to this point. And we could really say that Samson had been playing with fire. One of the things you discover as you trace the life of Samson is that when he's going wrong, he's going down. I won't turn up the references, but in chapter 14, he goes down. He goes down into the valley of Sorek, and he sees a beautiful woman. He's going in the wrong direction, and he had a weakness. You see, if you follow his life, he had a weakness for beautiful women or beautiful girls. Sees this beautiful woman, and he wants to have her as his wife. His parents remonstrate with him. They say, are there no girls here in uh, Israel? that you want to marry the, the daughter of an uncircumcised Philistine? Do you want a child of God to be joined with a heathen woman, a woman who worships a false god? What does Samson say? Imperiously, get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. He's going in the wrong direction. In chapter 16 at the beginning, he goes down to Gaza, and there he goes into the home of a harlot. And when he leaves that hope, he's going up to Hebron. You see, he has gone down, down to Gaza, down to the valley of Sorek. Constantly we find this man, he's going into the wrong direction. And you are always going in the wrong direction when you disobey God. Always. Think of Jonah. Jonah was told by God to, to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach to it the preaching that God would bid him. Jonah didn't want that. Now, it's not because Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites. No, as we discover in chapter 4, he was afraid that God would save the Ninevites. What a terrible thing for a man who had been already used by God in the time of Jeroboam II to restore some of the territory that had been lost by Israel, and now he's given a simple command. You go to Nineveh, you preach what I tell you to preach. And what does Jonah do? He rose up and he, he went off to flee in the opposite direction. God had told him to go in a northeasterly direction. What does he do? He goes in a southwesterly direction. He goes in the very opposite direction to flee to Tarshish that some people believe is modern Gibraltar. He's going in the opposite direction. And he goes down to Joppa. Down, yes. And he goes down into a ship. And he goes down into the sides of the ship. He's moving in the wrong direction. And you know, as, as Samson moves in the wrong direction, his behavior, his behavior becomes quite despicable. Child of God, going into the home of a harlot, a child of God dallying with Delilah, and then telling her lies. We didn't read from the start of the chapter. She wanted to know where his great strength lay because she wanted to betray him. He was in danger. And he told her lie after lie. And at the end she says, Hitherto thou hast told me lies. You're a liar, Samson. How terrible. What sort of a testimony is that? A child of God in the home of a harlot. A child of God wanting a heathen wife. A child of God 
telling a heathen woman a pack of lies. His behavior is shocking, and his behavior is also, and this is one of the things that happens, his behavior is presumptuous because he says, you try this, I'll be weak. You try that, I'll be weak. And then he he gets to the dangerous point where he speaks about the hair of his head. Now in his long hair that God had ordained he should have, in his long hair lay his strength. And yet he, before he betrays his secret, he speaks about his hair uh, being woven uh, into uh, the beam. And he's getting closer and closer. And it is something that happens to us. Uh, when you get away from God, and maybe get away a time or two with wrongdoing, there's a certain madness comes over you. You become presumptuous. I did it before. I can do it again. I got away with it the last time. And subconsciously, we're saying, I'll get away with it again. I can always repent. And if you know the teaching of eternal security of the child of God, you can presume on that. And you can say, well, uh, I'll be okay. I'm a child of God. I'll repent and I'll come back. I'll enjoy my fling with the world. And then I'll come back to the Lord and all will be well. You know, the worst thing that happens to a child of God is when he or she gets away with doing wrong. What is far better is when you don't get away with doing wrong. Jonah got away with doing wrong. When he went to Joppa, there was a ship. When he got to the ship, there was place for him. When he checked on the fare with the shipmaster, he had enough money to pay his passage. And so everything's going in Jonah's favor. And when he gets into the ship, he is so relaxed, he falls fast asleep. There's a storm taking place. He doesn't even know it's happening until he's rudely awakened by the shipmaster and says to him, what meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God think upon us that we perish not. He's getting away with it. Yes, but to his own cost. The worst thing that could happen to him is uh, to get away with it. You might see the same with David. A a king, and David was anointed to be king, was not to multiply wives. He marries Saul's daughter, Michael. But then we find him, he marries Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and he also marries Abigail, who had been the wife of Nabal. So there he has three wives. And later on you see him with more wives. And when you sit down and you count, you discover that by his wives, excluding uh, the concubines, he had 19 sons. He had at least one daughter. And there must have been many other sons and daughters by the concubines. There he is. Uh, He's turning away from God uh, and doing what is wrong in God's sight. Uh, It starts off in a little way. Uh, There's Michael, then there's Ahinoam, we think, next, and then there's Abigail, and there's three, and before long, there's ten, and before long, there's more. And then his son, he steps up uh, after David's time, and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yes, uh, uh, trouble, trouble comes step by step until there is a great fall. I remember reading of 
Uh, it was actually in the Daily Bread Bible readings many years ago, for I haven't read them for many years. And it, uh, the writer spoke about a beautiful voice. Beautiful voice. It looked perfect. And someone touched it, maybe handled it roughly, and the vase fell to pieces. And the mystery was very easily solved. It was full of little hair cracks. You mightn't have seen them with a naked eye. It was full of those hair cracks. And at a rough handling, maybe slightly less than a rough handling, it falls to pieces. Isn't that what happens to you and me when we fail? We look back and we don't realize I've been compromising. I've been doing that. I've been doing something else. It's wrong. My thoughts have been wrong. My words have been wrong. My actions have been wrong. I've been compromising with the world. And suddenly, great disaster strikes in our lives. And we might apply the same to those who are unsaved. They hear the gospel. They don't listen. They take another chance with their soul and another chance until finally disaster strikes. I say this to you. People do not backslide overnight. There are many little backslidings before a Christian falls into major sin and disgrace. Maybe you curtail your time of prayer, your time of Bible reading. You stop coming to the prayer meeting. Maybe you neglect the evening service. And at home, maybe family worship is discontinued and little by little you're drifting you're like that vessel that's at sea there's no anchor and uh, all's calm at the first until you're nearing the rapids and you're about to be destroyed i say this to you when these things happen you don't always notice that they're happening to you it says of samson he wist not he didn't know that the Lord was departed from him. But that leads me to another point because the Lord is a very faithful God and his people will not and they must not be allowed to drift endlessly. And so we want to see how the Lord, was, how the Lord chastened Samson. Samson took the ultimate step and he betrayed his secret to Delilah. He said, there hath not come a razor upon mine head. You shave my head, then I'll be as weak as other men. And the way he expressed himself, Delilah knew. He has told me all that is in his heart. Here he is, and he's vulnerable. Doesn't know it. He's vulnerable. He doesn't think she'll do anything uh, to betray his secret to the Philistines. But she's a treacherous woman. And he's a, a fool, we might say. He's a mad fool, telling her his secret, telling lies to her, doing all that is displeasing to God. Can God let him away with it? No, of course he can't. Whom the Lord loveth, the Bible says, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Thank God. Thank God for chastenings. Thank God for every time he chastens us. You know, in the society in which we live, children are rarely chastened by many parents. And the result is children grow up to be rebellious, to rebel against their parents, to rebel against authority, to rebel against God. And so many children are being destroyed by indulgent parents. 
To me, it's a form of child abuse. I'm not saying we should be harsh with children. I'm not saying we should be cruel. But it is a form of child abuse. Not to discipline your child. Not to care when your child does wrong. To think the child is smart when he or she does wrong. He's so cute, isn't he? Yeah, cute when he's doing wrong. He's not cute. He's doing evil in the sight of God. And so the Lord, as a loving father, he chastens us when we do wrong. And look what happened to Samson. There he is fast asleep. And Delilah knows that he has told all his heart. And so she calls in the barber and his head is shaved. And there he is. He awakes out of his sleep. I'll go out and shake myself as at other times before, he says. He's really saying, I'll destroy these Philistines. They'll not overcome me. I was there in the city of Gaza and I lifted not just the the gates, I lifted the posts of the gates. I carried them up to the hill of Hebron, which was perhaps uh, nearly 20 miles away. I will do it. I slew the Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. I will conquer these Philistines. But he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. And now look at him. Look at him. His eyes, uh, we think they were probably burnt out. That's exquisite pain. Exquisite pain. Backsliding has a price. Exquisite sorrow of the heart and soul. His eyes are burnt out, we think. And then he's put to shame. There he, he walks along. And the Philistines are leading this blind man who has lost his sight through his own sin, they're leading him along. And uh, Spurgeon points out something very interesting in, uh, in one of his sermons. He says, you look at him walking, and he says that he hasn't yet learned to walk as confidently as someone who has been blind for years or maybe has been born blind. You might watch a blind person walking along, and you'd say they seem to know where they're going. But Samson, he doesn't have that confidence. He doesn't know what the road is like in front of him. And so he's stumbling along, shuffling along, afraid of every step. There he is. His confidence is gone. He's brought to shame. He's brought to fear. He's brought to disgrace. And he's placed, we think, uh, in the place of a donkey. There you are. You're like a donkey. The mighty man. The man that God used in overcoming the enemy. He's reduced to standing in the place of a donkey and doing the work of a donkey. He is surely chastened by the Lord. You might say he's chastened by the Philistines, but more so, chastened by the Lord. Now, not all chastening is physical. In Psalm 32, we have David's, one of his psalms of repentance after he had failed the Lord most miserably uh, and had fallen into grievous sin. And in Psalm 32, David speaks of a time when he was in denial, a time when he was refusing. And listen to what he says. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. He's really saying, when I refused to confess my sin with Bathsheba, when I refused to repent, when I tried to pretend all was well, He says, my bones waxed old. And when your bones wax old, uh, you're in a state of 
physical collapse. Uh, and uh, he says, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. He, he's in a terrible condition, uh, David. Uh, we're not talking here, I believe, about physical age. We're talking about a man who internally is in a state of collapse. People may have looked at him, and I think I may have mentioned this before. People may have looked at him and said, there's something wrong with David. Has he got a disease? Is it a terminal illness? He's not, he's not himself. And even though he's, he's putting a good face on it, there's something wrong. Yes, there is something wrong. It's wrong on the inside. He's being chastened on the inside. And mental anguish is reckoned uh, by uh, those who have looked at these things. It's reckoned to be more difficult to deal with than physical anguish. Physical anguish, you have the suffering, the pain, the physical pain, but greater pain is mental anguish, the pain that's on the inside. And that's what David was suffering. But then I put a positive note on this, and that is that all chastening for the child of God is good. No chastening, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, it says afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness in them that are ordained or exercised thereby. So it has a positive effect. Remember reading of an old preacher and he was describing potions that are mixed for the health of the sick. And some of the ingredients in those potions are lethal. If you took that ingredient in isolation, you'd speedily lose your life. But when it's mixed in with other ingredients, it is health-giving, and it's good for you. And when God chastens, he mixes in other ingredients. He mixes in his mercy. He mixes in his love and his grace. And how good it is. How good. Good when the Lord chastens us. Oh, we hate it. We say, oh, if only, if only this chastening would come to an end. But what we don't see is the gracious hand of God in mercy, in mercy, in love, in grace, bringing chastening because he, he wants to deliver us. He wants to bring us to where we should be. And then uh, when the chastening has done its work to restore us to full fellowship, to make us more zealous than we've ever been before and make us determined, I will never, I'll never go down that road again. But I put this point to you, avoid backsliding. Not talking simply about open backsliding. Avoid the little backslidings that lead to greater backslidings. Backsliding leads to sorrow. It leads to grief. It leads to shame. And what's more, and this is very, very solemn, it does harm and indeed great harm to other people. Samson hurt his father and mother. He hurt them when uh, he said, get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. There he is. I think I said in going down to the Valley of Sorek, that was a later time. I think I made a mistake there because it was Delilah he saw in the Valley of Sorek. But he went towards the Philistines' country. I think it was in Gedi. And there he saw Delilah. 
Yeah, or there he saw the Philistine woman that became his wife. Yes, uh, and he grieved his father and mother. He hurt his parents. When you sin and backslide, you hurt other people. David's family was destroyed to a great extent by David's backsliding. You hurt people. You hurt the people of God when you backslide. Isn't it always a source of grief and hurt to us when somebody says, there's somebody who used to come to your church. There's someone who who was strong and witnessing in your church. And now look at them. They've backslidden. Uh, They're in the world. When it happens, say to our children, our grandchildren, grieves us. We hurt other people. And then I may say Samson hurt his wife. He did her and he did her father great harm because when he destroyed a field of corn of the Philistines, the Philistines said, who did it? Who did it? And they found it was Samson. What did they do? They went to the home of Samson's father-in-law. They set it alight and Samson's father-in-law and his wife were burnt to death. You hurt other people when you go astray. And of course, if you're unsaved and you turn away from all the warnings, you hurt yourself most specially. Oh, how sad it is. How sad it is when we get away and go further and further away from God. But I want to finish now with one more point. And that's the verse 22. How be it the hair of his head began to grow again after that he was shaven. And I want to say that in the last point, God did not forget his wayward child. Verse 22 is full of meaning. Uh, you can imagine the scene in the prison house. You can imagine how Samson bemoaned his failure. The Bible says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Thou wilt not despise. Other people would despise it. Think of the the erstwhile great man, the mighty man, the man of great strength. And there he is, walking round and round in endless circles. And there he is, crying his eyes out, even though they're sightless eyes. He's crying and crying. And he's crying to God. And a restoration is taking place. That little indication, the hair of his head began to grow again. That's a sign of renewed consecration. And with renewed consecration, the power of God returns. And now, the Philistines, when they think they have him in their power, and they're celebrating their God, Dagon, they said, bring out Samson that we may have sport with him. And Samson comes out, he's still blind because consequences often remain in this life. Still blind and still perhaps walking uncertainly. And he says to a boy who's leading him by the hand, a hand he says, let me feel the pillars on which this great temple of Dagon is built. Let me get my arms around them. And he gets his arms around them. The people think he's He's weak, oh, he's, he's so weak, he's so helpless. And Samson cries unto God, avenge me of my two eyes. Let me die with the Philistines. And I've heard someone say that uh, 
That was suicide. I don't believe it. His aim wasn't to kill himself. His aim was to destroy the enemy of his people. And incidentally, he knew he would die uh, as part of that. And so he cries to God with all his might. His strength has come back. Down comes the temple of Dagon. And Samson dies. And interestingly, at the end of the chapter, he's buried beside his godly parents. And at the last mention we have of him, he's right with God. He's in fellowship with God. And we can say this in the midst of Samson's failure. How good, how good is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend. His love is as great as his power and knows neither measure nor end. And in the second verse of that hymn it says, "'Tis Jesus, the first and the last. His Spirit shall guide us safe home. We'll praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that's to come. I say to you, seek him, give yourself up to serve him and avoid backsliding. Avoid, pray that God will keep you from backsliding. See it as a plague that brings shame and disgrace and pain as something that dishonors God. Oh, turn to him with all of your heart. We'll sing our final.